I mean, I've had moments when I didn't think life was worth living, and I imagined my own suicide. Never that I planned it or I was going to do it, but I kind of fantasized it, you know? I've been to those places, so I get it. Secondly, I would say, I feel that the world's against me. That's not a feeling. It's a belief, okay? If you have that belief, it's because at some point you had that experience. But you're not having that experience right now. That experience was that of a child who was helpless and alone. So what's showing up in your belief system is not your present situation, but your childhood emotional experience. And like I said before, in the present we can heal. No matter what happened then, we can heal in the present. So the first thing I would ask a person like that is, are you willing to consider that healing is possible for you? Or have you totally given up? I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today we welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate is a retired physician who spent 20 years in family practice and worked for over a decade in Vancouver's downtown Eastside with patients challenged by drug addiction and mental illness. He is the best-selling author of five books published in 30 languages, including his latest book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Gabor is an internationally renowned speaker, highly sought after for his expertise on addiction, trauma, childhood development, and the relationship of stress and illness. And let's face it, so many people are struggling right now with emotional pain, stress, uncertainty, anger, and more. So I'm so excited to have Dr. Gabor Mate on the show to talk about what we can do about all of this and more. So with that said, let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Gabor Mate back to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Mate, welcome back to the podcast. Nice to be with you again, Doug. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. And one of the main reasons I wanted to bring you back on the show is that a lot of people are struggling right now. So many people. I'm getting texts from friends that are struggling. I'm getting texts from friends who have friends who are struggling. And so many people, they just don't know what to do. Like there's this world that we live in that there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of sadness. And I think people are having trouble just coping, you know, in day-to-day life. So you know, what is your advice for somebody who's listening to this, who is one of these people who is in a lot of pain mentally and emotionally, and they're just having trouble coping with life? Well, first of all, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I see the same thing myself. And the statistics show the same thing. So even the rate of childhood suicide is going up in the States, particularly, you know, more people are being medicated, diagnosed with all kinds of mental health conditions. Something's going on. Well, I think... Before we, it's a very typically American thing to do is, what are we going to do about this, you know? But really the first question is, how are we going to understand this? Because what we do will arise from how we understand something. And um, if you take your car to a mechanic, the first thing to ask, he's going to ask is not, what am I going to do about this, but how will I understand this problem? Which part of the mechanism is dysfunctioning here, you know? And so the first thing to realize is that the anxiety, the pain, the distress, the depression, the alienation that people are experiencing, they're not the problem. They're the manifestations of a problem. Actually, they're signs 
If I experience anxiety or depression, that's a sign from my body and my mind telling me there's something out of alignment in my life. So it's not a question of how do I get rid of the depression. I mean, we want to, for sure, recover from it. But in order to do so, we have to say, well, what is this telling me about how I live my life? And what do I need to change? So that's, so in other words, we see these conditions or these mind states as signs. And then we have to say, well, what, what is it signaling? That's the first point. The second point is, just as your question implies, these can't be individual problems. I mean, if it was happening to the isolated individual here or there, occasionally, we'd say, well, maybe it's an individual issue. But when it's happening on a large scale, it's got to be something cultural. It's got to be something that's happening in a society that's driving so many people to, literally driving them to despair. You know, and that's the topic I discussed in my book, The Myth of Normal, about which I think I was on your podcast before to talk about. So what we're looking at is a cultural problem here. And the cultural problem we're looking at is that this society stresses a lot of people. Now, if you look at the sources of stress in the scientific literature, the major triggers for the stress response are uncertainty, lack of information, loss of control, and conflict. Now, uncertainty, lack of information, loss of control, and conflict. I think I've just described this culture. How many people lack a sense of agency and control in their lives? I'm going to give you a trivial example. When... Uh, Elon Musk buys Twitter, and overnight, he fires 7,500 people. And he tells the other 7,500, you can show up to work, but you're going to work harder and longer. That's 15,000 people multiplied by them and their families. That's about 40,000 people probably being affected by the decision of one guy. Well, talk about loss of control. You don't control whether you work or not, and you don't control the conditions of your work. That's a major source of stress for people. The uncertainty of what's going to happen next. The United States, richest country in the history of the world, more than half the population lives two paychecks away from bankruptcy. I mean, talk about uncertainty. And then there's all the traumas that people are carrying that, you know, what happened to them as children and the lack of secure attachments and acceptance for who they were, the need to fit in, the constant competition. These are conditions that could be almost designed to make people anxious and depressed and hostile and um, very insecure. So, you're asking what to do. Well, the first thing to realize is there's nothing wrong with you. Your depressions, your anxieties, they're normal responses to an abnormal situation. So don't take it personally. Don't take on shame. Don't think there's something wrong with you. And then secondly, Given that so much of it has to do with loss of control and uncertainty, look at your life and see where in your life does uncertainty and lack of information and loss of control show up. Look at every aspect of it, whether it's in your personal relationships or your work or whatever you're doing. And what can you do to gain some agency? And if you can't gain agency because of your circumstances, then at least understand that this is how it is and you'll have to adjust to it. But don't think that there's something wrong with you. Now, there are more specific things I can suggest, but the beginning has to do with an understanding that it didn't start with you, and there's nothing wrong with you, and you have to look at the whole context of your life, not just try and get rid of a symptom. 
thanks for explaining it in the way that you did because that makes so much sense and you're right like a lot of times you know people are just struggling from something in their past or they're just struggling from things that they can't control as a result of what's going on around them and i think sometimes we need to be able to be like proactive and kind of play chess if you will so that we can kind of do our best to stay one step ahead and you know regarding the fact that in a way like the world is kind of set up for us to become more disconnected for us to become addicted for us to become stressed how can somebody begin to take some sort of control over their lives on a day-to-day -day basis so that they can make the most of this because it's not like you know we're going to be able to change the world overnight no unfortunately we can't well let's take the problems that you mentioned uh, you mentioned addiction okay so if you do have an addiction rather than seeing it wh whether it's to sex or gambling or pornography or to substances or to alcohol or whatever or shopping or eating or first of all ask yourself not what's wrong with the addiction and i don't know whether we talked about this last time or not but ask yourself not what's wrong with the addiction what's right about it what's it doing for me and most people will say it soothes me or it numbs me or it gives me stress relief or it gives me a sense of control in other words recognize that the addiction is not your primary problem it's your attempt to solve a problem the problem of emotional pain of emotional loss of stress and so on so rather than making yourself wrong for the addiction ask yourself well where have i lost control why do I have so much emotional pain? What happened to me? Why am I living under so much stress? So begin with, again, actually looking at each of these problems in context, rather than making isolated problems out of them, look at them in context. Now, when it comes to stress, there are, broadly speaking, two kinds of stresses. I mean, you can look at stress in a whole number of ways, but one way to look at this is as follows. There are stresses that life brings your way that you can't do much about, you know, if where you live, there's going to be a tornado, there's going to be a tornado. There's nothing you can do to prevent a tornado. You could, in the long term, move to some part of the world where there are no tornadoes or less chance, but most people don't have that kind of options. So some things we can't do much about. At least in the immediate sense, you can't control inflation. I mean, the government could, and those that have the economic power could, but they have no interest in doing so. You know, That's all about the story. But you can't. So there's some stresses there's not much you can do about. Although you could become politically active and see if you can affect the system. That's all the question. But then there's a whole lot of stresses that we generate for ourselves. And those stresses that we generate from ourselves have, broadly speaking, two sources. Well, let's give you an example. Let's say I'm supposed to be on this podcast with you. But let's say the link didn't work. I could say the link didn't work too bad. We'll try again some next, some other day. Or I could get all upset about it. It's so frustrating. One more time, it didn't work. What's wrong with this technology? And I'm going to miss this opportunity to publicize my book. And what's that going to mean? And, you know, I really wanted to express my opinions. And I'm always going to, in other words, I could make a whole story out of it. And that would really stress me, you know. Now, look at the stories that you're making up when stuff happens. Because it's not what happens that stresses you. In this case, there's nothing particularly stressful about a podcast being technologically impaired you know or or delayed but if i make a big story around it then it's you know it's an exaggerated one i'm presenting you here but if i make up a big story around it i'm really going to stress myself so we stress ourselves by the stories that we tell ourselves you know a friend of yours says let's go for coffee and then they cancel well you could make up a story that 
I'm not lovable or they don't love me or they're undefendable and why is everybody like that and why is this always happening to me, you know, that would really stress you. Or you could say, you could say too bad, I'll just get on with my day. So a lot of the stress is the stories that our minds make up around events that happen and those stories are rooted in trauma because if you get upset because your friend didn't show up for coffee, it's because you had some abandonment in childhood and you still have that wound. So one way to de-stress is to deal with our traumas. Now, the second source of stress that we make up is the stuff that we take on because we don't say no. And I do talk about this in the book, The Myth of Normal, quite a bit, that, that some people grow up believing that if they say no to others' demands, expectations, then they're selfish or then they won't be liked, they're not lovable, they have to earn the world's respect, they have to earn the world's validation, so they don't say no, they take on too much, and that really stresses them. So one of the exercises I recommend is that you ask yourself, where am I not saying no? But there's a no that wants to be said, but I'm not saying it. That's how the exercise begins. Now it has got five other questions. But once a week, sit down and ask yourself, where this week did I not say no, where no wanted to be said, when I didn't utter it because I was afraid to. And that usually shows up in two aspects of life, work and personal relationships. And that no that you don't say. Like if I ask you, Doug, has it happened to you ever that you wanted to say no, you didn't feel like doing something, but you said yes anyway? Oh yeah, a lot. <laughs> What's the impact on you when you do that? I get overwhelmed, I get stressed, I feel like ashamed because I'm like, why did I say yes to something that I knew I didn't want to do? I mean. Exactly. So the impact is pretty huge, you know, of not saying no. And then if I ask you, well, what's the belief behind me not saying no? Like if I say no, then what? What's the story there? I mean, the story is, are they going to be mad at me? Or, you know, why aren't I capable of fitting more into my schedule? I mean, it's all like a lack of self-worth. Exactly. Which goes back to childhood. Okay. So over the things that we can control, the stories that we tell ourselves and where we don't say no, those are big, if you learn how to deal with them, those would be huge mitigators of the stress that we live under. And again, some stresses, you know, oh my gosh, there was an article in the New York Times just this last weekend about what happens to black mothers and children around birth. And they do a lot worse. Rich black women do worse than poor white women. They're more likely to die. Their babies are more likely to die. And they didn't cause that. That's the stress of racism. And not just around birth itself, but lifelong, because lifelong racism affects the physiology of the body. Now, those are stresses that nobody caused for themselves. If they get enough support and heal, they could possibly resist the effects of that kind of stress. But the stress is coming from a society that is fundamentally still suffused with racism. Well. That you didn't cause. If you're a black person, you didn't cause the racism. You know, if you're a white person, you didn't cause the racism either. You inherited it. You know, it's part of the culture. So some stresses are social ones, and we have to deal with them on a social level. But on a personal level, like, now you, I know that you have an interest in men's health, for example. So men, the belief that I have to be strong and invulnerable, and I must never talk about my feelings. And before this interview began, you and I mentioned the the rising and gender unequal rate of suicide. So men are more likely to commit suicide. 
men are also more likely to commit violence against women. So there's something about the way this culture programs men that encourages aggression, either against the self or against other people. That's not the fault of individual men, nor is it an issue of biological gender. There's no genes for suicide. Why would there be? You know, nor is there a gene for violence against women. Why would there be? But if people become depressed, and for example, in the United States, two economists wrote a book about what they call deaths of despair. One of them was a Nobel Prize winning economist. And um, what's happened is that in the industrial heartland of the United States, where industrial jobs evaporated over a couple of decades, they were exported basically to countries where there's cheaper labor. So that the well-paying, reasonably well-paying, unionized jobs and job security and sense of purpose and meaning and belonging of men all of a sudden was taken away from them. That wasn't their fault. But belonging and contributing and having a sense of meaning and purpose are essential human needs. So when all of a sudden that's taken away from men and now they can't provide for their families the way they used to be able to, their sense of own value diminishes. Now they're more likely to become addicted and try and soothe their pain through substances. So you have this high rate of overdose deaths. In the United States last year, over 100,000 people overdosed. Almost twice as many people overdosed in the States as Americans who died in the Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghan wars put together in one year. Now, there's a reason for that. The reason isn't an individual one. It's a social one. It's a society that takes away a sense of meaning, purpose, and belonging from people, which leaves them in despair. Now they're going to escape into addictions or kill themselves. And these have been called deaths of despair. Wow, that's wild. Thank you for sharing all that. And in regards to like all of what you just described, you know, like how we put stress on ourselves, addiction, mental health, a lot of it, like you said, comes back to healing some of the trauma that has happened in our lives. And then also unlearning some of these unhealthy patterns and behaviors that we have experienced as a result of the trauma. And my question is to you is that I think sometimes people get so stuck in their in healing their past and that becomes like the main focus of their life that they don't focus on the future at all, which is what they really need to work on to better themselves. Actually, no. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so this is the book, The Myth of Normal, okay? Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. It's 15 weeks now on the New York Times bestsellers list. The point I'm making in this book is everything I've just said is in the book, but it's not a question of working on the future or the past. It's working on the present because here's the deal. Trauma is not what happened to us. Trauma is what happened inside us as a result of what happened to us. So for reasons I explain in the book, I got the message in the first year of my life that I wasn't wanted. Okay? The trauma is not the war and the genocide amidst which I spent my first year. That wasn't the trauma. Those were the traumatic events. The trauma was the wound, which is in my belief that I wasn't wanted and I'm not worthy. That's the trauma. But that's the good news. Because if the trauma was what happened to me, that was 78 years ago. It's over and done with. I can't change the past. I'll never not have been born as a Jewish infant under Nazi occupation. That'll never not have happened. Whatever happened to you, that'll never not have happened. But if the trauma is my belief that I'm not worthy, I can heal that in the present. And healing the present 
So it's not a question of changing the past. It's a question of changing your relationship to the past in the present moment. So I could be embittered, and believe me, I have been, about the death of my grandparents in Auschwitz. I could be embittered about my infancy, and believe me, I have been. Or I could be damn grateful that I survived and have been able to pursue work and relationships that have been so meaningful to me. But it all depends on which angle I'm looking at it from. As long as I'm looking at it from a traumatic angle, I'm just embittered and despondent. I can't change the past, but I can change the present. Now, needless to say, I'm not giving you a formula. I'm just telling you my personal story. If I could look at it in this world, and on a bad day, by the way, I still don't. But if, but if I can look at this world as a world in which there's a place for me, in which I can find meaning and love, my future is very different. So it's the present we need to work on. We need to work on what beliefs and body states do we hold in the present that limit us. If we deal with that present, the future will take care of itself. How did you transform your relationship like with your past? You mentioned that there was a point where you were pretty bitter about what happened. And I think a lot of people, they get hardened you know, on the outside because of what's happened to them in their past that they, they just feel so much anger. Like, What are a few things that, that really helped you soften up when it came to that? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I have been using for quite some time now. Lately, I have been trying to use it as an alternative to coffee as I am trying to cut back. I can say I think it might be working. Using it can be as simple as adding it to a smoothie or mixing it with water or your favorite nut milk. Cacao Bliss starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to eartheckofoods.com slash Again, it's eartheckofoods.com slash to check it out and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Well, it certainly wasn't an event. It was a process that took, I'm sort of thick-headed, so for me it took decades, you know? And, uh, and even after I was well appreciated out in the world as a healer and author and so on, even after that, I had trouble shifting my own perspective on myself. You know, so that was a process that involved at some point therapy. It certainly involved my relationship with my wife because we, we tend to carry our hurts and our limit, self-limiting beliefs, our resentments into our closest relationships. And we tend to make our partners responsible for making us happy. And basically I'm saying to my wife, take away my wounds, would you? And if you don't, it's your fault. You know, that was my attitude for a long time. I tell you, it doesn't quite work. You know, so ultimately you have to learn to take responsibility for your own wounds and your own beliefs. And my relationship has been a powerful school ground for that learning. So the relationship therapy, all the reading that I've done, the work that I've done with others, psychedelic medicines have been of self-help to me as well. So spiritual work, taking care of my body so it doesn't drag me down, you know, like I can hardly wait to finish this conversation, not because I don't want the conversation, because but because I get to go for a swim afterwards, you know? And for me, swimming is just like a real meditative 
releasing exercise, you know. So it took a lot and it continues to take an effort, you know, and an effort in a very positive sense. So somebody's stuck in old patterns, there's no reason to despair. I mean, it feels painful and difficult, but the possibility of healing is present all the time. Yeah, it's so true. And thanks for opening up and, and sharing all that. And I think that like, we just have to have compassion for ourselves and also like the self-awareness of where things aren't going well in our lives and then knowing that you know it is possible to change these things and that it's going to take quite some time because a lot of this stuff has been ingrained in us for for decades perhaps and a lot of it we didn't really realize was bugging us until you know maybe recently and along those same lines i feel like sometimes people think that because they went through a certain experience in their lives a traumatic experience that it's going to limit them for the rest of their lives what is your take on that and do you believe that people should feel like their life is going to be like less than somebody else who maybe didn't have as big of a traumatic experience? Well, I used to have those beliefs about myself. Even after intellectually I knew better, emotionally I was still oriented that way. I wish I could play for you a video that's on my computer. It's from a death row inmate in Texas. This man committed a killing when he was 18. He was um, a troubled teenager, came from a highly traumatizing childhood. His father was electrocuted by accident. His after which he became very aggressive and violent with the son, divorce, gangs, the whole thing, and he ended up killing somebody. That was 22 years ago. He's been on death row since. On death row in either Austin or Houston, I forget which. The inmates are in cages, basically. They're not in locked cells. They're in cells, but the cells are open cages with all the other death row inmates. And these appeals go on for decades, as you know. And... Uh, he underwent a transformation. He talks about it in this video that he sent me. He was used to be addicted. He became a meditator. He began to learn about his trauma, how to heal his trauma. He's taken responsibility for what he's done. The daughter of the man he killed wrote him a letter saying, you gotta take responsibility. And that woke him up. He took responsibility. And he also began to understand the sources of his aggression and his drug use and his gang membership you just need to belong somewhere now he teaches kids online about compassion and avoiding drugs and he is an artist he's gonna have an art exhibition open in los angeles next week and he's still facing a death sentence and over the years he's seen many of his friends on death row being put into their death clothes strapped to a gurney and pushed away to their deaths and he loves life and the best he can hope for the best he can hope for if the appeals succeed, of which statistically the chances are low, the best thing you can hope for is that he'll be, his sentence will be commuted to life in jail without a parole for the rest of his life. And he says, I love life. Well, if you can love life in a cage on death row and be creative and be meditative and contribute to others, then who can't? Now, my mind says, I can't. I know how miserable I get if I stub my little toe, you know, never mind being on a death row in Texas, you know, but I'm just telling you what's possible. That's amazing. What an incredible story. And it's just so cool to hear how he's completely transformed his life. And, you know, I don't know if we talked about this the last time, but it's sad, I think, that we have to go through so many painful moments to experience these positive transformations, right? We, we sometimes don't change things in life until life makes us change it, right? And... What do you say to somebody right now who 
they're just afraid of like living in the world that we're in today. Because as you just we talked about, it's kind of a hard place to exist in right now, and they've lost hope. They're like, all right, I'm listening to you guys chat, and I know that I need to change certain things, but what's the point? Like, I feel like the world's against me. Like, how can somebody escape the victim mindset? Well, so if I was talking to a person like that, I would say, first of all, I get it, because I've been to that place myself. I mean, I've had moments when I didn't think life was worth living, and I imagined my own suicide. Never that I planned it or I was going to do it, but I kind of fantasized it, you know? I've been to those places, so I get it. Secondly, I would say, I feel that the world's against me. That's not a feeling. It's a belief, okay? If you have that belief, it's because at some point you had that experience. But you're not having that experience right now. That experience was that of a child who was helpless and alone. So what's showing up in your belief system is not your present situation, but your childhood emotional experience. And like I said before, in the present we can heal. No matter what happened then, we can heal in the present. So the first thing I would ask a person like that is, are you willing to consider that healing is possible for you? Or have you totally given up? By the way, a person who's totally given up wouldn't be telling you this. Because when people talk this way, whether they know it or not, they're asking for help. If they weren't asking for help, they wouldn't say anything. They just slink off of their own and isolate themselves. And as some people do. So anybody who speaks the way that you just cited is already, whether they know it or not, they're looking for help. And if that's the case, then they can be helped. And so that's the second point is, don't try and solve this on your own. We're human beings. We're creatures that evolved in connection and community. You're not alone with this. It may feel like you're alone, and you certainly might feel lonely, but you're not in fact alone. Millions feel exactly the same way. And they're not crazy, and you're not crazy. Those beliefs and feelings are normal responses to abnormal circumstances. So that's how I begin working with the people, with the person with that mindset. And I guess to take this one step further, you know, I've heard you talk about like that one of the main problems with society today is that a lot of people who have mental health struggles and they're struggling with situations like this where they feel stuck and they can't get out of their own way at times. They feel like people are against them. They're dealing with trauma and then they, you know, they might go see somebody who's not trained in trauma. They don't have the experience. Like how can somebody begin to take that path and make sure that they're finding somebody that is like you know trained in that and then also that they're able to self-regulate themselves when needed well that's a huge question because unfortunately look i've been through medical training i'm a physician and uh, the average physician never hears any of the stuff i just talked about the average psychiatrist doesn't get any training in trauma not in they learn something about ptsd which is a specific form of trauma but they learn they don't learn about the traumatic basis of depression and anxiety and ADHD, and they, they, they learn nothing about it. So that it's very difficult to find good help within the medical system. Now, many therapists also don't get any such training. There's a lot of therapists that are designed only to change your beliefs and your behaviors, but not to address the fundamental reasons for those behaviors. So a lot of psychologists trained in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or dialectical behavioral therapy, a lot of them are not really, and I know this, believe me, I know this, they just don't know much about or anything about trauma. Then they can't help you with the fundamental wound that you're carrying. They can help you with the manifestations, and that's not, that's not useless, but they can't help you heal at your core. So then there are therapies that are deeper than that. There is um, 
body-based therapies such as somatic experiencing developed by my friend and teacher Peter, Dr. Peter Levine. There's sensory motor psychotherapy developed by Pat Ogden. There's EMDR that works for some people. There's internal family systems or IFS developed by my friend and colleague Dr. Richard Schwartz. There's compassionate inquiry which is based on my work and I train therapists in that method. There are others, other names I could mention. There's Larry Heller, Lawrence Heller, and his work and his students. So what you have to look for is somebody who's trauma-informed and is willing to work with you, not just on your behaviors, but on your core wounds of which the behaviors are symptoms. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because like in my own experience, I mean, I've struggled off and on with my mental health over the years. I mean, I've told you a bit about my story in our last conversation. And, you know, when I would go, there wasn't like a lot of talk about my childhood. There was, it was just like, all right, you're having some anxiety. Cool. Like here's a pill. And then I would just take it and I would just think, okay, this is going to cure my anxiety. And then I would realize like, it's not really, I'm still getting anxiety. I'm still struggling. Like what's going on with this? And it wasn't until I understood like, my past and my trauma and how that was all related to what I was experiencing in the present that things were able to change. And so let's just say that, that somebody has now, they found somebody they're comfortable with that's helping them heal their trauma and change their present and their current behaviors and patterns and that sort of thing. And then they go down weeks down the road, months down the road, and they're on the up and up, but get triggered or they experience a situation where they're like, oh my gosh, like I thought I was getting better. Why is this coming up? What's your advice to people who are dealing with triggers when they're on the road to uh, recovery from trauma? Well, there's two ways to ask that question that you just raised. Why is this coming up? Is that a question? What is it actually? What is this teaching me? No. When you say, why is this coming up like that? That's not a question. It's a statement. It's a statement that says, this shouldn't be happening to me. Okay? Now you ain't going to learn anything that way. But if you actually ask it, hmm, I wonder why this is coming up. Now you can learn something. If I came to you and said, why are you doing this? How would that feel to you? I would get, probably get defensive and I would just feel like a little ashamed. Exactly. But what if I said, hmm, I wonder why you're doing this? It would force me to think a little bit and practice the pause and say. Well, I don't know if it would force you, but at least they would invite you, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Now, so that's the first point is, is how should we ask this question? It's a good question, but we have to ask it as a question, not as a statement of resentment or resistance. That's the first point. The second point is use the word trigger. Really great word. Now, if I showed you a rifle with a trigger, how big a part of the rifle is the trigger? It's very small. Very small. For that trigger to set off anything, that what there has to be, there has to be a mechanism to deliver ammunition, there has to be ammunition, there has to be an explosive charge. When I get triggered, Let's say you say something to me and I get triggered. What you said was a very small little thing. I'm the one who's got the explosive charge and the ammunition. You didn't cause me to do that. If I didn't have that ammunition explosive charge, you could say whatever you want. And I just sit here saying, hmm, I wonder why he's saying that. You know, so triggering is a great opportunity to learn. When you get triggered, you could either focus on resent and resist the trigger, or you could say, huh, what was I still carrying inside that I haven't looked at yet, that I haven't resolved yet? So if, you know, I used to tell the story, you know, we've been married 53 years now, my wife and I. So let's say 20 years ago, um, I might ask to sleep with her and she would say no. 
you know, which is, nobody can ever believe that that ever happened, but it did used to happen, you know. And how would I respond? I would respond by going to a rage and curling into a fetal position and not even wanting to live, okay? Now, the trigger is the no that she said. The explosive is my belief that I'm being rejected and abandoned and not wanted, and that I'm an infant and helpless, which is what happened to me. Otherwise, if she says no, oh, I can get curious. Are you tired, or have I done something to turn you off, or is there something we can talk about? Or I can just be disappointed and let go of it and say, okay, well, thanks, you know, there'll be another day. So how I respond is not dependent on the external event. It's dependent on what charge I'm carrying. So triggers are wonderful times to learn about yourself. So if you ask the question, not why did I react that way, but huh, I wonder why I reacted that way. Now there's a whole lot of learning to be done. So that's what I call compassionate curiosity, where we're actually curious about ourselves, but not in a self-judgmental way, but in a compassionate way. Oh, this brought up the pain of rejection. Obviously, I'm still carrying that, that wound. Well, let's look at that, because it's not happening in the present. I'm glad you brought that up and that we have to change the language and how we talk to ourselves during those moments, because for me personally, I'm extremely hard on myself. So that like voice that you were saying, like, you know, like, why is this happening or why is it doing this to me? Like, that's something that I've said in my life very, very frequently because of the fact that I'm really hard on myself. I sometimes when something doesn't go my way or when I get triggered or bothered by something, even though I've done a lot of work on myself, I'm, I'm so hard on myself because I'm like, gosh, like I, I'm better than this. I know I should be doing better than this. So that was really eye-opening for me. So thanks for sharing that. Well, and you know, that voice in your head that tells you all that stuff, in this book, I actually talk about getting into a relationship with that voice because this is what I call a stupid friend, you know, because at some point that voice came along when you were quite small. See, if you were suffering as a kid or things weren't going well, there's two assumptions the child could make unconsciously. One is the world is dangerous. My parents don't know how to love me, value me. I can't trust anybody. I'm all alone. I'm going to suffer in this world. The other belief unconsciously is there's something wrong with me, and maybe if I work hard enough, I can fix it. Now, which belief is more protective for the child, do you think? The second one is more protective. Exactly. So it came along as kind of a friend to keep you going. It's a friend. I say it's a stupid friend. The reason I'm joking when I call it stupid, but the stupidity comes in because it doesn't learn that you're no longer that child. It keeps giving you the same message. So my suggestion, Doug, is next time you hear that voice, say hello to it and say, Thank you. You know what? Because ask yourself, how old is that voice? I mean, how old were you when it first came along? I mean, I was young because I remember there was this, this idea that I developed about myself from when I was a child that I wasn't good enough because I wasn't picked for sports teams. I got yelled at a lot. So give me an age, five, six, seven. Yeah. I mean, I would say I was in elementary school, I think. But let's call him a seven-year-old. This voice is a seven-year-old kid telling you a story. So say hi to it. Hello. I got it. You're still working to make me better in this world. But you know what? Relax, kid. I can take care of it now. You know, it, it's, this, it's just a little immature little friend. That's all it is. It didn't come along to torment you. It came along to actually protect you. Right. And I think you're right. It's so important to have a conversation with that voice and then also change the conversation with that. And then along the lines of like, you know, childhood, one of the things that my audience wanted me to talk to you about 
more in depth is is like parenting and that parents are having a hard time right now i think with their kids growing up in this world that is hard you're easily distracted you're easily addictive you're easily on your screen all the time like what advice do you have for parents who are, who are raising kids in this world today so that they can you know raise them to the best of their ability it's very difficult to raise kids these days because we're not living in the way that human beings evolved like every animal evolves in a certain environment and context and is suited to that environment and context. If you want to understand elephants, don't study them in a zoo. Study them out in a, in a forest or where they live, you know? And human beings, we no longer live in the environments even close to it in which we evolved out there in nature in small groups connected to each other. Parenting kids was what used to be a group activity. It happened in the tribe, in the clan. Parents had lots of support. Kids spent their whole day around their parents. It wasn't goodbye in the morning, hello in the evening, and most of our time is spent away from each other. That would never used to be the case, not to millions of years and hundreds of thousands of years. Now, we can't go back to that life, you know, nor would anybody want to necessarily, but we have to understand what we've lost. So first of all, you have to understand a few things, understand a few things. The great Buddhist teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, who died about a year ago, he said that the greatest gift a parent can give to their child is his or her own happiness. So take care of your emotional states because your kid is sensitive enough to be downloading your emotional states and making them their own. So if you're stressed, unhappy, depressed, anxious, addicted, believe me, your kid is going to absorb all that and make it about themselves that there's something wrong with them. So take care of yourself. Live a life that you can live with. And if you get the first three years right, by the way, you got it made. So when your kids are really small, consciously make the first three years as stress-free and as clear of psychological dysfunction as possible. That means work on your traumas, work on your relationship with your partner, your spouse. That's the first thing. Beginning with pregnancy, by the way, number one. Number two, understand what the needs of children are. Needs of children are for unconditional loving acceptance in the context of a secure relationship where the child doesn't have to work to make their relationship work. The acceptance and the regard should be unconditional. Allow the child to have all their emotions. Whatever the emotions are, let the child have them, understand them. Don't force them to suppress their emotions. I'm not saying be permissive with behaviors. I'm saying don't force the child to suppress their emotions. Don't tell them not to be angry. Don't tell them to cheer up when they're sad. Validate the anger, validate the sadness. These are essential brain circuits for such feelings. Nature gave them to us for a reason. Allow the child to experience them. That way they can stay connected to themselves. Thirdly. There's a need for spontaneous free play out in nature. Get the hell away from these devices. Don't give a one-year-old an iPad or a cell phone. Get rid of the screens in your house when your kids are small. Have a screen in a locked room for yourself if you need one. But don't be phoning and texting and, and emailing around your kids because the message they get is the device is more important than they are. Don't go for a walk with them and texting and looking at your cell at the same time. Don't give the kids these devices They've been documentably shown to interfere with the healthy development of brain circuits. This has been shown on brain scans. So if I was raising kids today, I wouldn't let them near a screen for years. On the other hand, I would encourage them to be outdoors, be with them, play with, in nature, spontaneous creative play. So these are the essential needs of children. I talked about them in this book. They're difficult to provide in this culture because if you do any of this stuff, you'll be an outlier because all your friends 
I know your kids' friends' parents will be on their cell phones all the time. So you have to make a decision not to buy into the false values of this, what I call this toxic culture. So that's some basic advice, you know, easily said, hard to achieve, but at least these are the goals that we need to be striving for. I wish I had known this stuff when my kids were small. That's some great tips, and I'm sure the audience is going to appreciate that. How do you feel, like, where's the line with coddling and, like, tough love when it comes to kids? Because I hear a lot of people talk about now that, you know, kids should be able to experience some levels of stress as they get older and adversity so that they can develop healthy coping mechanisms for when they're adults. Like, what's your take on that? Well, first of all, there's no such thing as tough love. There's either tough or there's love, but there's no such thing as tough love. By tough love, they usually mean punishment and rejection which is unhealthy. That's the first point. Discipline. We want to teach our kids discipline. Yes, we do. We don't want to teach it to them. We want them to develop discipline. But let's look at that word discipline. What's a disciple? Well, who follows you, yeah? Why did Jesus' disciples follow him? Because he loved them and they loved him. Kids, if we love them, they will follow us. They'll be our disciples. We don't have to force them into anything. It's the quality of their relationship and how gentle we are with them. Now, as to coddling kids, let them experience the stresses of life. Believe me, they will. That's how life is. We don't have to add extra stress to their lives by punishing them. They're going to have disappointments. Their friends will not want to play with them one day. Their cat will die. They may break a leg. They will lose a beloved object. Mom or dad may get sick. Their best friend will move away to a different town. These are the inevitable stresses of life. We don't have to impose stresses on kids. What we have to do is to help them cope with the stresses that naturally arise. That's not cuddling. That's just, when a kid has grief because their best friend moved away, you hold them and you say, that really sad is, that's really sad. That makes you feel sad, doesn't it? You don't buy them a toy to make them feel better. You let them have their sadness, but you support them in that sadness. So parents who cuddle their kids, try and protect them, try and bribe them, they're not helping their kids. But neither are parents helping their kids who punish their kids or who force their kids to suppress their natural emotions. Yeah, some great points. And I think what you said is spot on. Like you don't want to try to fix their problem. You want to support them through the problem so they can get used to having support and asking for support when they're going through hard times. The last question I wanna ask as we kind of bring things somewhat full circle is I think a lot of the the problems that we create for ourselves, whether it's using substances to numb pain, whether it's you know escaping by you know staying on our phones too long or being in the wrong relationships or whatever the case is, it's because we're like afraid of being with ourselves and we're afraid of being ourselves and we're disconnected from who we are and we're lost, what are some ways that if somebody's listening to this and they, they feel like they're afraid of being themselves or feeling disconnected from their true self, how can they get back to that level of authenticity? Well, first of all, if I'm afraid to be with myself, there's a good reason for it. It's because when I was going through difficult stuff as an infant or a small child, I was left totally alone. And for the child, those states of fear or emotional pain are unbearable. Therefore, we fear being with ourselves. We always try and distract ourselves somehow, whatever that is, music or a book or some restless activity or television or talking to people or, you know, but that fear of being with ourselves, that's a sign of trauma. So first of all, don't make yourself wrong for it, but understand that that too is a source in your life and try to understand your story. 
why you might have developed that fear of yourself. And realize, and this takes meditation, it takes work, it takes body work, whatever it takes, that you're not that child anymore. That when you get triggered, if you learn what that's all about, you'll learn that you can actually handle that emotion. So it's okay for my wife to say no, and I might say, okay, I'm disappointed, but I don't have to put myself and her through a big stressful drama because I'm still telling myself that I'm an abandoned infant, you know? So we need to strive to get into the present moment as much as possible. That may take spiritual work, that may take body work, that may take therapy, but it can be done. It might take connecting with nature, which is always present, but um, it can be done. Yeah, such great advice. And I think, you know, a lot of times what happens is it's during the moments where we are most afraid of being by ourselves that we actually need it the most. And that's like when some of the greatest levels of growth come is when you spend time in that discomfort and you get outside in nature and you start to learn more about yourself so that you can start to understand like, you know, not just some things that you're unhappy with, with yourself or what some things that may have happened to you that you are angry about, but more like what you like about yourself, what you love about yourself and what you want to do moving forward. So Dr. Mate, this has been awesome. I wanted to thank you so much for your time. Once again, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think people are going to get a lot of value out of it. Obviously you got your latest book, The Myth of Normal, New York Times bestseller. Congrats on that. And if people want to check out your work, if they want to buy any of your books, follow you online, where's the best place to do that? Well, I don't sell any anything myself, but many dozens of my talks on YouTube, I didn't put them up there, but people did. Some have seen my millions of people. So check my name on YouTube. You can hear me blather away in all kinds of topics endlessly, if you wish. There are five books of mine. Next week, two of them, this coming weekend, Two of them will be on the New York Times bestsellers list, including The Myth of Normal and my book on ADHD, Scattered Minds. There's my website, Dr. Gabo Mate. There are organizations that have filmed me and they sell courses based on my work or you know, featuring me. One is called wholehearted.org. The other is Psychotherapy Networker. These sounds true. These organizations have all filmed courses with me that are available. Compassionate Inquiry. There's something called a compassionate inquiry short course, which is not for professionals, it's for the layperson. It's it's not expensive and it sort of goes into my teachings around trauma and healing. And then then again there are my books. So, you know, there's lots of ways to get a hold of my work if people are interested. Amazing. Well, I'll make sure to link your stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. We talked about so much, whether it was something we chatted about as far as healing trauma, dealing with like life stress, coping with stuff. Maybe it was something we talked about as far as as parenting. Maybe it was something we shared as far as like how to deal with being triggered and how you have to change the conversation with the voice in your head. Whatever the takeaway was, make sure to tag Dr. Mate and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. We once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.